You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 62 by Rudolf Steiner, 14 lectures entitled Results of Spiritual Research, translated by Simon Blacksland DeLange. This is Lecture 13, given in Berlin on the 3rd of April, 1913, entitled Morality in the Light of Spiritual Research. When Plato, the great Greek philosopher, wanted to give some kind of a definition or characterization of the divine, he described it as the, in quotes, good. And Schopenhauer, who in many respects followed Plato, once said in his writings that he was far more entitled to refer to his philosophical outlook as an ethic, in quotes, than was Spinoza, for the reason that he, Schopenhauer, based his whole world conception on the primal force of the will, hence something that is at the same time connected with the innermost moral impulses of the human soul that formed the basic creative force of the universe. Whereas Spinoza, so thinks Schopenhauer, built up his system in such a way that morality, the ethical, is not as such included in the highest world principles. Like Plato, Schopenhauer wished to indicate, as have the representatives of many philosophical world conceptions, that everything that we call morality in human evolution is so intimately and so deeply embedded in this evolution of humanity that one could scarcely conceive of the moral realm other than as ultimately encompassing also all purely natural occurrences and as lying at the foundation of everything that man can ascertain as the fundamental principle and basic essence of things in the natural or spiritual world. Thus, in the view of such philosophers, the moral element within man is the result of apprehending and being illumined by the divine morality that irradiates the whole world. And it is already implied by this that every development, in terms of world views concerning the primal foundations of existence, must always, as a matter of course, bring human beings ever closer to the sources of the moral impulses of the world. Even though one does not need to be fully in agreement with such philosophical world conceptions, one will nevertheless be able to say that proponents of such views arrive at the kind of opinion exemplified in both Plato and Schopenhauer because they sense the value and significance of the moral element in the evolution of mankind and, therefore, would not want to be without moral impulses in the primal foundations of world existence. Even without being theoretically in complete agreement with such world conceptions, one will nevertheless be able to learn from them and find it established that every world conception that seeks to be influential in human life and human affairs must in a certain sense appear justified before the judgment seat of morality, that morality must be able to say an unconditional yes to it. Thus, it is a necessity to be able to relate every world conception 
to the moral impulses of existence. The theme of today's lecture, the intention of which is to consider the relationship of what is meant here by spiritual science to the moral principles and impulses of the human soul, has arisen from foundations such as these. Now, when questions of morality are being addressed, a certain, one might say, holy awe of the territory that one is entering is necessary from the outset for something approaching a sensible way of considering the matters involved. Once one ventures into this territory where one has to give consideration to judgments which want to pronounce in the most intensive way upon the worth or lack of worth of the human soul, one immediately senses upon entering this realm that one is plunging into unfathomable depths of human soul existence, into such depths that one would not wish lightly and carelessly to come to conclusive judgments in this domain. Schopenhauer has also in this respect formulated a meaningful and much-quoted remark, quote, to preach morality is easy, but to implement it is difficult, close quote. What does Schopenhauer mean by this? That it is easy to preach morality is apparent as soon as one devotes even only a little attention to human life, for there can hardly be anything that people preach about as much as morality. There is nothing that is so subjected to judgment as the soul's moral status or the lack of it. And if one makes a thorough study of human life, one has to reiterate that moral preaching actually makes very little headway toward enabling human souls to grasp that the moral principles that are imparted to them by this or that philosopher, even if they are clearly understood, can also be real moral impulses living in people's souls. Yes, how easy it is for many people to preach morality who find it really difficult to put moral impulses into practice. Schopenhauer's meaning is that all the preaching that is done about principles, moral formulations, or moral edicts is actually without significance. There is, in his view, significance only if one can exhibit in one's soul a soul force, a soul impulse that becomes a reality in the soul and out of which moral actions arise. One would then be able to say that one is referred to something in the human soul that, if left to its own devices, results in moral action. One would then have found the ground for moral action in the soul. One will then have implemented a moral deed, because one has laid bare the moral impulse in the soul. This goes far beyond the mere preaching of morality. One can see directly from such a challenge, which is as justified as it can possibly be, how difficult it is to penetrate those depths of the human soul where moral impulses are indeed slumbering, where those impulses that give rise to morality or immorality reside. It is difficult to enter without judgments into those depths. Let us take a particular instance one that can teach us how difficult it is for an ordinary soul to make a judgment about the moral worth or worthlessness of a human action. Let us suppose that a person of some significance sets off for a ride on a horse. 
On his way, this person comes across a poor woman crouching by the roadside. The important person galloping by on the horse sees the woman, reaches into his pocket, and, taking from it a purse full of money, throws it to the woman. This is the scenario that is enacted before us. Now, it is a question of asking ourselves how we should judge such an action in the light of morality. Hermann Grimm, of whom I have also already spoken, says the following about the event, which was an actual occurrence in the life of a well-known individual. Suppose the woman was superstitious, and that the situation was that she had intended in the near future to commit a crime in order to provide for her children, who were in desperate need. Because of the purse of money that this man threw at her, she no longer had to steal and thereby add still greater misery to her family's plight. But she is superstitious, says Hermann Grimm. Why should the woman not say, Through this man an angel of the higher worlds appeared to me, and I was rescued from the abyss? Thus, through what this woman experiences in her soul, we would appear to have some kind of moral action displayed before us. But Hermann Grimm goes further, and makes the supposition that this person who threw the purse full of money to the woman afterward comes into the company of some other people. The first of these people, who hears the original person relate what he has done, thinks, I have always heard that this person is remarkably mean. I now see how worthless such judgments always are. Hermann Grimm then goes on to say that this man, furthermore, does his utmost for the bestower of the gift, contributing toward dispelling the rumor about his meanness by speaking everywhere about his magnanimity. But suppose, says Hermann Grimm, that a second person were to hear the same story and felt himself affected by it in a quite particular way, for he had, so we understand, not long before wanted to borrow a much smaller sum than was in the purse from that same man who refused to loan it to him. Will this second person not arrive at a different judgment? Or, continues Hermann Grimm, there could be a third person, who at the moment when he hears what has happened is prompted to say, quote, I am in need of money, can I not have something too? Close quote. Such a person could likewise arrive at a judgment that would be quite different, both from that of the woman and from that of the others. A fourth person might perhaps know when this incident is related that the man in question had considerable debts at the time, and this person will again say that it is thoroughly wrong to give money away so readily when one has the obligation to pay debts that trusting people are expecting to be honored. A further person, says Simon Grimm, might know that the purse of money did not belong to the man himself but to his wife, and that the man carelessly threw away the purse of his wife, who might therefore well complain about this man's reckless behavior. Several other points of view are also possible. Thus we see that people with differing viewpoints might judge such an action entirely differently and would not see the need to have a direct experience of the actual impulse living in the soul of the person performing the deed. Hermann Grimm places particular emphasis upon this instance because he wants to demonstrate the extent to which moral judgments should be treated with a certain reserve when they appear in, for example, the memoirs of a famous person. Judgments of all these different kinds 
could indeed appear in memoirs, for the whole affair that I have presented here did indeed occur in a comparable situation with the great poet Lord Byron. And Hermann Grimm came to speak about this incident through speaking with one of his biographers, who had known Byron personally. He has been cited here because his account clearly shows what is involved in making judgments about real life, which can be arrived at in a variety of ways. When we try to form a judgment about the moral worth of a person's deed, just as one must indeed say that it is, as Schopenhauer indicates, difficult to implement morality, so is it well-nigh impossible in any particular case to approach the soul life of a human being with a conclusive moral judgment such that this conclusive moral judgment truly reflects the actual state of affairs. However, considerations such as these should not lead to the view that we should be indifferent with respect to matters of morality. On the contrary, anyone who understands life in its totality will nevertheless regard morality as the holiest aspect of human life, and hence come to the view that what is most holy in human life should also be approached with a reverent awe. For it is in many ways presumptuous to form a moral judgment of another person in view of the extent of the differentiation between one human being and another. On the basis of what has been said, we now need to recall what has been presented here in these lectures about the character of spiritual science. Spiritual science leads us, on the one hand, more deeply into the spiritual foundations of things. But we have also seen that this is made possible in that we uncover deeply hidden forces of our soul life, so that we comprehend the spiritual foundations of the world only by drawing forth forces that slumber in the depths of the human soul. With the methods of spiritual research, we therefore approach the deeper foundations of human soul life, whence moral impulses stream forth in what is often so mysterious a way. The question that must now arise is, what happens when those explorations, seeking to illumine these inner depths of the soul, encounter the moral impulses that reside there? In the ordinary everyday life of the physical world, it is probably true to say that amongst the simplest of human souls and people of least education, moral impulses are able to speak forth from the depths with great certainty. While, on the other hand, it is also true that many highly educated people, including some philosophers and scientists, can on a moral level be put to shame by people who have little knowledge to call their own, but who nevertheless are able to accomplish the most sacrificial deeds of true human love out of the depths of their souls. Ordinary knowledge, outward physical understanding, clearly cannot furnish the means of gaining access to the depths whence the impulses derive from which morality can become a living reality. Now, if spiritual science seeks to encompass the spiritual sources of existence, it immediately transpires that a human soul that wants to become a spirit researcher must develop in a threefold way. This threefold path has been presented in the course of these winter lectures as the three stages of supersensible knowledge. The first of these is what we call imaginative knowledge, 
that is, that knowledge which manifests itself to the human soul, when it has freed itself from all sense perception and all intellectual activity that is linked to the instrument of the brain. Once the soul has achieved this, it feels a world of pictures rising up from its depths, and with further development on the part of the spirit researcher, these pictures become images of the actual spiritual realities that lie hidden behind the outward world of the senses. Imaginative knowledge is the first of these stages, which one will find explained in my book title Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, How Is It Achieved? The second stage that the human soul needs to attain, and even though it has already been mentioned that these things can only be expressed in a more or less pictorial way, it is as well to refer to this again briefly, to avoid any misunderstandings, consists in that what has manifested itself only pictorially, though this is not to be compared with the images apprehended by a particular sense, appears by means of a, in quotes, cosmic speech, as though out of itself, as inspired knowledge. That is, if the spirit researcher's faculty of inspiration has been awakened, the spiritual beings and realities that lie beyond the world of the senses speak to him. The third stage, which enables the spirit researcher actually to enter into the essential nature of spiritual realities and beings, is called intuition. Not that intuition, which is sometimes referred to by means of this word in casual conversation, but something that is a real stepping across of one's own soul life into the being of another, through which a person's capacity to connect his own being with another being enables him to enter into the inner nature of spiritual beings outside of himself. Thus, in contrast to knowledge of a sense-perceptible and intellectual nature, imagination, inspiration, and intuition arise at different stages of knowledge. The human soul enters into the spiritual world by means of these three stages of knowledge. The forces of imagination, which are for perceiving pictures of the supersensible world, the forces of inspiration, which apprehend what the spiritual realities and beings of the supersensible world have to reveal, and the forces of intuition. All these slumber in every human soul. Through the methods that have been described here, they can be brought into activity. Thus the human soul must enter as a spirit researcher into its depths, in order to come to the primal ground of existence. Now, it has already been pointed out, especially when the errors of spiritual research were being discussed, that the starting point from which the soul attains to those stages of its existence, where it is able to gain insight into the spiritual world, is of great importance. It was especially emphasized that a kind of loss of consciousness with respect to knowledge of the spiritual world manifests itself in a soul that does not have as its starting point a moral mood of integrity. Such a soul will manifest a certain benumbed quality toward the higher worlds and will be able to reveal from these higher worlds what is seen through such a veil and hence what is distorted and falsified. 
Thus an indication has already been given of the connection of the initial moral soul mood with what the soul can attain when it actually enters the spiritual world through imagination, inspiration, and intuition. But we can characterize the significance of one's moral state of soul for the higher stages of knowledge even more precisely than this. Imagination manifests itself in the spirit researcher in such a way that pictures arise as though on the horizon of his consciousness, initially from his soul life and then from his spiritual life as a whole. These pictures that thus appear, and whose significance we have already described, will inevitably differ in accordance with a particular state of soul that a person has already here in the physical world, a soul that has developed a sense for the right and true connections between facts here in the physical world, will bring with it into the higher worlds an inner capacity to discern the true relationships of things, when, through the methods described, it ascends to imagination. Thus we can say that a soul that truly understands how to live amongst the phenomena of the physical, sense-perceptible world carries its sense for truth with it into the spiritual worlds, whereas a soul that through inexactitude, as is characterized with respect to the sense-perceptible phenomena of the physical world by untruthfulness, and it has already been noted that from inexactitude to error and even to mendacity is only a small step, such a soul brings with it an inner capacity for untruthfulness in the world where imaginations, the pictures of the spiritual world, are to appear. The consequence of this is that from its untruthfulness, which is not in harmony with the world, but derives only from its own inner nature, a world of pictures is built up, which is only an outpouring of the human individual concerned. When a soul attains to imaginations, untruthfulness will therefore bring it about that such a soul is unable to reveal anything from the spiritual worlds other than the reflection of its own untruthfulness. Thus, in all spiritual schooling, the soul must, as part of its preparation for imaginative knowledge, before its entry into the world of imaginations, be firmly grounded here in the physical world in what one may call a sense for facts or realities. And it should be strongly emphasized that anything that detracts from a sense for facts cannot provide a right preparation for perceiving the spiritual world. For anyone wanting to become a spirit researcher, it will be a good preparation if he holds himself back as far as possible from all personal and subjective criticism, from judging things from his own standpoint, from always asserting, quote, I think this is right, close quote, quote, I think this is wrong, close quote. For someone wanting to become a spirit researcher, a much better preparation for spiritual knowledge is if one tries one's best to avoid making judgments about or assert the validity of things in the physical world purely from a personal standpoint, if one endeavors as far as possible to allow the facts of life to speak for themselves. We shall therefore find 
that someone who is on a right path to the spiritual world makes every effort in what he relates or describes not to present his own judgments about things, but to let things speak for themselves, in that his endeavor will, rather, merely be to juxtapose and combine the facts. Thus, when we come across someone who says at every opportunity, such and such has happened, I find it not to my liking, such and such has happened, I find it to be a poor show, such and such has happened, I find it repulsive, I find it splendid, however the shades of meaning may develop, such a person is not on a good path for approaching the spiritual worlds. A person is far more likely to be on a good path if he tries to suppress such judgments and purely and simply relates the facts, if he looks at the facts and lets them speak for themselves and is guided by the principle, if I impose my opinion on someone, it is, after all, only my opinion, and then I am not only telling him to believe me, that it is true, but also that I have an opinion. But if I set out to tell a person what I have encountered, he can form his own judgment for himself. The more that one inclines to the latter policy of looking at the world and speaking about what one has seen, the more one equips oneself with a sense for the facts and prepares oneself for imaginative knowledge. Anyone who wants to prepare himself for imaginative knowledge should, above all, become accustomed to say, with respect to every experience, this is how things are, he should consider it to be unimportant what he thinks about things and should endeavor to be merely the instrument through which they themselves can speak. If one takes this into consideration, it becomes clear that a quite fundamental virtue, that of truthfulness, forms from the outset part of the right means of preparation for a methodical schooling leading to knowledge of the higher worlds. One will not then come into the embarrassing situation of doubting that a right schooling for knowledge of the higher worlds is, or at any rate, should be something that leads to an enhancement of morality. Indeed, one can view this from another perspective. One can envisage a situation where someone has not prepared himself for the higher worlds through this virtue of truthfulness. The slumbering forces of his soul will then indeed be awakened if he carries out the corresponding exercises, and he will eventually be able to gain access to an imaginative world. But what will this world then be? It is none other than a reflection of his own being. And because at the moment when one disregards the sense world and also the brain-bound intellect, one is confronted by this imaginative world as something real, irrespective of whether it expresses a genuine reality or is only the reflection of one's own being. Anyone who is not rightly prepared through truthfulness will also find an imaginative world displayed before him, which he is led to believe that it is the real imaginative world, and yet it is only the reflection of his own soul, his own inner being. This world represents a constant temptation of untruthfulness. One can therefore say that someone who does not enter the spiritual world by practicing truthfulness places himself in a situation 
where the enticements to untruthfulness and lies are constantly present around him when he perceives the supersensible world. From this the only possible conclusion is that any ascent into the supersensible world must be associated, above all else, with the cultivation of a sense for factual realities. For only if we have a sense for the connection between the realities that we find around us in the physical world can we develop ourselves toward truthfulness. The same situation applies in a similar way to inspiration, although in this realm it is even more discernible and meaningful. Through inspiration, the things that exist spiritually around us speak to us, as it were, they display, reveal their being to us. We do not hear them by means of voices and sounds that resemble external sounds, but we hear them spiritually. A different kind of preparation is necessary if a person is not merely to apprehend what his own being reveals, but is to come to know a real, objective world. For this it is necessary to enhance a quite particular virtue of the soul. Such things can only be ascertained through experience. Anyone who wishes to attain to inspiration must develop within himself in a higher way than is necessary for the ordinary world, the virtue of moral courage, steadfastness and fortitude. For anyone who has moral courage, who does not shrink from what may under certain circumstances endanger his own being, will be able to withstand what speaks to him from spiritual realities through inspiration. And someone who has developed too little fortitude and moral courage before he enters the spiritual worlds, will very soon notice, or rather, he will not so easily notice it himself, but the others who understand something of the matter will notice it. That certain things speak to him from the spiritual world, but that everything that speaks to him is only an echo of his own being. Because his soul is not strong enough, because it does not have full hold of itself, it is unable to retain what it is within itself, but lets it stream forth, and what it is itself then returns to it. A soul which has not been prepared for inspiration through moral courage will very soon present itself as one that hears something like, quote, spiritual voices, close quote, but these spiritual voices will be none other than what it bears within itself which is only an echo of its own being. A soul that arrives at this situation will most certainly be crushed by what is impressed upon it from the spiritual world. So we see again that an important quality of the soul, a quality of which the moral character cannot be deprived, must be strengthened and consolidated if this soul wishes to enter the supersensible world. Moral courage, fortitude. This is necessary as a preparation for true inspiration. From this it can easily be concluded that it is of primary importance to strengthen one's moral courage in the physical world before one seeks to become a spirit researcher, so that the soul can indeed perceive the revelations that have been given by way of imaginations also through inspirations. 
Many who have not understood these matters sufficiently thoroughly have thought that being able to depend upon the moral courage of another soul gave them the means of ascending into the supersensible world, and that sooner or later they would manage to get there. And they merely showed that they were reflecting their own being, which they interpreted as, in quotes, sounds, and in quotes, words from the spiritual world. Thus, spiritual schooling is intimately connected with the enhancement of moral forces, and therefore every rightly imparted spiritual schooling will seek to strengthen and consolidate these powers. For this reason, you will find that wherever methods through which one can ascend to the spiritual worlds are described, for example, in my book, titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, Indications are given regarding the necessity of strengthening one's moral forces, for they cannot simply remain as they are in the ordinary life of the physical world, but they must be enhanced and consolidated. However, what is needed in this connection strikes us with particular clarity when we advance toward intuition, through which a soul that has become a spirit researcher is enabled to place himself within another spiritual being or another spiritual reality. We shall find that it is virtually impossible to incorporate oneself in other beings after spiritual schooling if one has not ensured in the physical world that the quality which can be referred to as having a free, open interest in everything that surrounds one is enhanced. All petty reserve, all withdrawal into oneself, everything that does not guide the soul's attention toward sharing in the sorrows and joys of fellow human beings, and of everything that surrounds us in the world of the senses, all this prevents the soul that has ascended into the spiritual world from attaining true intuition, from arriving at true knowledge of higher beings. And here we stand within the realm where our considerations have an affiliation with what Schopenhauer calls his reason for morality. Schopenhauer was no spiritual scientist in the sense intended here. Thus, for him, the soul that descends into its depths does not enable one to see that it develops a threefoldness of forces that corresponds to the three stages of knowledge, imagination, inspiration, and intuition but everything is merged together for him. The soul is a nebulous mixture of all forces living within its depths. Thus Schopenhauer is also unable to explain the moral virtues, the development of which must be the preparation for a spiritual schooling, a sense for facts and actualities as a foundation for the virtue of truthfulness with respect to imagination, fortitude, as a foundation for what leads to inspiration, and the third, of which Schopenhauer gives a full explanation, that slumbers in the depths of the soul, and which one can in general refer to as interest in the surrounding world and its beings. But Schopenhauer draws attention to something else, and here he exhibits a quality of real inspiration. He draws attention to what in fact is one of the few soul qualities and soul impulses that show already in the physical world that there exists a kind of sub-earthly connection between one soul and another. Schopenhauer draws attention to compassion, or rather sympathy. 
One only needs to mention the word compassion or sympathy, of which Schopenhauer says, that it must be present in every soul that can be called moral. And one will initially feel that with this word, sympathy, something is indicated that is in fact connected with the innermost moral impulse, with what can be a true foundation for morality. On the other hand, one will feel that with the word sympathy, one is touched upon something that is an intuition that is already present in the physical world, a translation of one's own soul into that of another. For anyone who is able to contemplate the world with any degree of intelligence, that which is denoted by the word compassion represents a proof that there is a subphysical connection between one soul and another, a proof that the spirit with its forces is actively present between different souls. Thus Schopenhauer, and the same applies to others who have looked into these things, is right to call compassion or sympathy the true mystery of the human soul, which can be observed here in the physical world. For there is something infinitely profound about a soul that is incarcerated in a body, feeling something concerning which another soul rejoices, or through which another soul suffers. So that in the toing and froing of forces of one soul to another soul, a kind of spiritual mystery is enacted already here in the physical world. Thus Schopenhauer says that one can preach morality as much as one likes, but morality is actually based upon sympathy or upon compassion. One can therefore indeed say, along with Schopenhauer, that there is only as much morality in the world as there is sympathy. There was a certain justice in Schopenhauer's having pointed out that it would be intolerable to hear the words, quote, This person is virtuous, but he has no compassion. Close quote. Schopenhauer means that everyone will sense the impossibility that such words could be expressed, that virtuousness and absence of compassion could be combined in a single soul. Thus, Schopenhauer also implies that it is intolerable to hear the words, quote, He is an unrighteous and wicked person, but he is very compassionate, close quote. Even though one may well say that the inner nature of the human soul is sometimes so confused that one can also experience how someone may perform deeds that are without doubt wicked and lacking in virtue, and yet can develop a certain feeling, for example, for doves and similar creatures. All in all, however, one can say that Schopenhauer is touching here on the very foundations of morality. If one is speaking in the sense of spiritual science, one must extend the principle of compassion somewhat further, and there then appears before our soul what one can characterize as a participatory interest as a participatory attentiveness with respect to everything that is happening around us. For someone who cannot share in a joy that is being experienced does not have a real inner interest in it, and a person who cannot share in the sorrow of another being has no deep, genuine interest in it. In many respects, compassion, sympathy and interest are linked together. To have real, true interest means to have love. For one cannot have interest without having love in the true sense of the word, without having sympathy. 
So the right preparation here in the physical world for intuitive knowledge is to strengthen the soul by getting it used to having an interest in everything that lives, breathes, and is, to cultivating an attentiveness for everything that surrounds the soul. The deeper our interest can be, the better we prepare ourselves as spirit researchers for intuitive knowledge of the higher worlds. Thus one can say that for spiritual science, the radiating of compassion in the physical world is like a reflection of the fact that those deep forces of the soul that lead to intuition can only develop rightly and truly if the soul is prepared for this through having a genuine interest in the surrounding world, that is, through having love and sympathy. Thus, whenever there is any discussion of the true path of spiritual schooling, we see that this true path is inseparable from what is, at the same time, the most important of human virtues. These most important, most crucial moral virtues are fully encompassed by an interest-filled love, by an attentive awareness of all sorrow and all joy, and indeed all existence, by a steadfast surety of purpose, and by truthfulness. If anyone wishes to understand a virtue such as faithfulness, he will be able to come to know it most easily as a particular form of steadfastness. A person who is steadfast will also, correspondingly, understand the importance of keeping faith. All virtues, one might say the totality of all virtues, can be traced back to these three qualities of the soul. Now, if one is to describe the relationship of spiritual science to morality, one must also point out that a person who actually arrives at a contemplation of the spiritual world, whether through spiritual schooling or whether he merely accepts without prejudice what spiritual research has to offer him, comes before a world that places quite particular demands on him, demands which will, quite certainly, call upon the soul's reserves of confidence, hopes, and inner forces. But the human individual also arrives at the point where he confronts himself, where he has in full self-knowledge, as it were, stepped forth from his personal limits, where he has entered a world that no longer bears within itself only his personal interests and intentions. Our soul comes to that point on the path of spiritual research when it confronts its own personality, when it confronts the being that it has been hitherto. It has already been pointed out that this confrontation with the being that one has previously been is referred to in spiritual research as the meeting with the guardian of the threshold, that threshold which separates the supersensible world from the ordinary physical world. In this guardian of the threshold, one observes for the first time what one is, what one has hitherto called one's personality, one's interests, what one has willed, what one has felt as something that was connected with sympathy or antipathy. All this comes before one as a stranger, and yet it comes forth from oneself. One beholds it as a stranger and learns to say, This is all that you have previously said. Now you have it before you, and it shows itself to you as another being. You are outside of yourself. 
It is similar with the person's feeling and willing at the moment of meeting the guardian of the threshold. When one experiences this, one also knows how strongly all the magnetically working forces are that draw one toward the personality that one was and which one must abandon. That is the most important thing about this shattering experience, that one is aware that one must get away from oneself. But this being that one was and which one confronts does not want one to get away. It draws one with overwhelming forces toward itself. And if one succumbs to these forces, one will not be able to enter the spiritual world. By coming to know oneself, one learns to know the bond between the higher worlds, between the higher powers of knowledge that slumber within a person, and what one is in the physical world. On a theoretical level, this becoming free from oneself may appear quite simple. However, if one experiences this event, not only through spiritual schooling, but through what a person can understand, through what spiritual schooling can impart, it becomes clear that these magnetically working forces are not to be overcome so absolutely through making a judgment, but that with the process of freeing oneself, the strength of the forces of bondage grows so that one feels Everything that seeks to draw one back becomes stronger the more one gets away from oneself. One notices increasingly what draws one to the ordinary personality, and one is also aware how necessary it is that one has previously acquired the strength to resist these magnetic forces. This means that one must indeed precede the actual entry into the spiritual world with such a strengthening of one's soul forces with respect to what is good and moral, with such a dedication to what the Spirit demands of us, that one can resist the enticements of the lower personality with a stronger power than is necessary in the physical world. Thus, when one faces the shattering events that have been characterized, one becomes aware for the first time that every approach to the Spirit is at the same time a matter of drawing closer to moral challenges. So one has learned through experience something that justifies what Plato, the great Greek philosopher, says when he refers to the divine as the good. When one confronts natural phenomena, one's judgment of them will be correct to the extent that one refrains from making moral judgments about them. Who would want morally to judge, say, a salt crystal or a plant for being stunted in their development? In the ordinary physical world, the natural and the moral world order are intertwined, so that one only feels the depths of the moral world order when one is aware that one will actually be admitted to the spiritual world through moral strength alone. Hence, it is a principle of the spiritual world, and it is also a matter of experience, that anyone can come to the guardian of the threshold but only someone who passes by him through moral strength is able to do so. However, those who approach him and then have to withdraw are then confronted by a spiritual world that is only the reflection of their own inner world. Thus, anyone can believe that he has a whole spiritual world before him, 
He can also show other people what he means by saying that he has a spiritual world before him. And the other people may believe that there is a spiritual world that corresponds to the truth. But if he has not been able, through his moral power and through his moral state of soul, to pass by the guardian of the threshold, his spiritual world is not pervaded with truth or objectivity. It will therefore arise out of itself that any real knowledge of the spiritual world will present a picture of spiritual relationships such that the way that it is presented will at the same time not merely preach morality, but will implement morality in the soul. This is especially the case when one considers what has often been described here from a variety of points of view as a necessary fruit of spirit research, the life of the human soul through repeated earthly lives. Everything that we are in one life forms the causes of the qualities that we have in the following life, and the qualities that we bear within us represent the influences deriving from previous earthly lives. A soul that does not develop a sense for what is factual will, through this inadequately developed sense, prepare causes that in the next earthly life form the predispositions for a soul that has a prior tendency toward untruthfulness, untruthfulness that has, so to speak, been cultivated in such a life, gives rise to a predisposition toward untruthfulness in the next life. Truthfulness alone, when cultivated in one life, gives rise in the next earthly life to the predisposition to the outward talent of truthfulness, so that when one speaks of truthfulness as a necessary preparation for spiritual schooling, one is at the same time referring to something that forms within the soul the inclination toward a greater degree of morality than in the past. If, instead of fortitude, instead of moral courage, a certain inner indifference is developed, an easy-going attitude, a shrinking back from being true to oneself in one's soul, from bringing to fulfillment what one has recognized as true and right, because this works upon inspiration, such a soul life in which this cultivation of fortitude has been neglected will thereby be the cause of influences that will have an effect upon the next life and make the soul into a self-serving egotist. Egotism in one life is, as it were, inspired from the previous life through the soul's lack of moral courage in that life. And the effect of being indifferent toward the outer world, lacking interest and attentiveness and being selfish and reserved, is that as a kind of intuition, this present being sends its influence to the next earthly life, where it bears the fruits that it has engendered, that is, that it engenders a tendency toward alienation from the surrounding world, toward a non-relationship with it. What does it mean for the human soul to be alienated from its surroundings? Oh, it means a great deal. Someone who is alienated from the surrounding world and does not fit into it finds that its effect on him is such that it makes him continually ill. And this works not only upon the soul, but also right into the body. Pathological, unhealthy dispositions are transmitted as a kind of intuition from a previous earthly life to a following life, through this soul having journeyed 
inattentively and without interest through life. What, in one incarnation, is more of a soul nature, a lack of interest in, a lack of sympathy with one's surroundings, reaches more deeply into the next incarnation, right into the bodily nature, and appears in the form of ill health. Thus, if we study the moral foundations of the human soul in a spiritual scientific sense, we see that we do indeed touch upon what is active within it as impulses, in that the soul migrates from the one life to the other and builds up the new life in accordance with the causes that it has brought with it from the previous one. Thus morality becomes the formative power from one life to another. And we do not then merely preach morality, but we know what morality does, how it works as a power within the human soul. So all those objections that are with a seeming justification made against spiritual science fall away. When spiritual science speaks of repeated earthly lives in the sense that what a person has experienced in terms of joy or sorrow will be balanced out in a following life through karma, it is often said that this is the basis for a certain egotism. But if one does not haggle over niceties, but sees the point of the matter, if one wants to speak not only about preaching morality, but about implementing it, it must be said that in order to become more and more moral, the soul must become more and more perfect. That is, the inner impulses must be shown for it to become more perfect. Thus it must be shown how moral impulses are connected with the perfection or imperfection of the soul. So, when it is a matter of demonstrating the relationship of spiritual science to morality, we can say, spiritual science is quite certainly validated by the justified demands of morality, for it must at the same time incorporate moral demands into its own most significant demands. Indeed, in a certain way, it justifies those impulses that lived in a thinker such as, for example, Plato, who referred to the divine spiritual as the good. In that it shows how the spiritual tolerates only the good, that is, it must be intimately related to the good. Thus spiritual science may be regarded as something that not in an outward but in an inward way contains within itself the principles on which morality is based. And in addition to much else, of which we shall speak in the next lecture, concerning what spiritual science may give human beings for the inner support and health of their souls, for everything that they need by way of strength for work, of confidence in order to maintain themselves in outer life, and to fulfill their task in life, spiritual science can give us something further which is an important addition to the understanding of human life and which may satisfy the human soul. We have, after all, at the beginning of this lecture drawn attention to the fact that morality and moral judgment are indicative of those depths of the human soul where the soul relates silently and with reverence to other souls because it is aware of the difficulty of intervening where moral impulses reside within the soul. We have therefore seen that someone who speaks of moral principles in life 
touches upon those unknown depths of the human soul before which we must stand with the highest respect, so that we must say to ourselves that any unjustified interference in this human soul is itself an immoral act. And we sense as a result of our moral relationship to our fellow human beings that in our moral judgments we stand before the depths of their souls. And spiritual science shows us that when these depths of the human soul have been strengthened, when they have been reinforced and consolidated, they do indeed lead to the objective spiritual world, through which alone the soul can become a fellow citizen of the spiritual worlds. It is therefore the case that what we stand before with reverence in moral judgment is at the same time that which is alone the permit, in quotes, for crossing the threshold behind which the spirit, together with its mysteries, holds sway. However, this makes us aware of the essential nature of the human soul, of the relationship of the human soul, when it is comprehended in that deep sense that enables us to say, even when we are unable to agree with the moral behavior of a human soul whom we encounter, in that we take into account the human soul's passage through repeated lives. Yes, even in the depths of the human soul that we are obliged rightfully, morally to condemn, there lives something that makes it related to the spiritual world if it but wills to penetrate into its depths and become conscious of the sources of morality residing there. Thus the spiritual scientific understanding of morality reconciles us with what we may call the true value of the human soul. It puts the words into our mouth which we need in order to give strength for joy and abundance, to give strength for the spirit and the soul, to give consolidation for life's many sorrows, to acknowledge that in every situation of the human soul, even when this soul is not conscious of this or that, there is much about which the soul may say, even if it is very hidden, there is something within me that professes goodness. This is especially helpful when the soul needs strength in order to keep going, when strength is needed for life and work, when in spite of errors in the moral realm, the human soul can nevertheless say to itself, and it can do so when it comes to know itself through spiritual science, what Theon says in the Greek poet Euripides' play, Helena, I want to do the good by nature and love it, because I must respect myself. The end of lecture 13